Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, you'll hear a conversation about liver cancer with Dr. Tamar Taddy. Dr. Taddy is Associate Professor of Medicine and Digestive Diseases at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. So digestive diseases, is that gastroenterology? Yes, it is. Uh, So gastroenterology is a very big field, and um, we cover the entire digestive tract. So in gastroenterology, As a field, you may find very many subspecialties. My subspecialty is the liver. The liver, which is hepatology, is that right? Mm -hmm. Okie doke. So the liver is an important organ, I guess, right? It's the powerhouse of the body. What does it do? It does a lot of things silently that you cannot exist without. So it actually is responsible for metabolizing many of the drugs that we take, many of the foods that we eat. It's uh, responsible for making clotting factors, so without a liver you would bleed to death. It's responsible for all of the metabolism of cholesterol um, and other major pathways uh, upon which the human body is dependent. I think, you know, the, the biggest risk of liver failure is obviously we worry about bleeding to death, but, you you know, you would see a person who doesn't have a functioning liver being very jaundiced. The liver handles all the bile, which is delivered to the digestive system to digest food. I can't tell you in less than probably a decade of my life how fantastic this organ is. And, <laughs> and you know, most people grow up their whole lives and don't even know where it is. It's the second biggest organ in the human body outside of the skin, and it's nestled right under our right rib cage. Under the rib cage? I thought that's where the lung was. Right. So the lung takes up the majority of the rib cage, but as you get towards those lower two ribs, that's where your liver is sort of tucked in, right there underneath your lung. Is that what my doctor's feeling for when he like, is digging his hands in so deeply and I have to take a deep breath and Correct. it makes me want to puke? Yes. And oftentimes they'll even tap a little bit on your side. And that's sort of a way that the doctor kind of has a feel for how big your liver is. So how do I know if I have a liver problem? So sadly, and very importantly, you won't know until it's too late. So many people don't present to the doctor until they have very advanced liver disease. And the reason is, is that you actually don't feel sick until your liver is functioning somewhere under 30%, and in many cases, even under 10%. Um, So we have a lot of reserve. The liver is a very forgiving organ. But, you know, if you have a lot of scarring in the liver, then the, the, the organ can't regenerate. The liver is really the only regenerating organ in the body. And the fact that, um, you know, if you have exposures that, that predispose you to developing scarring in the liver, then that can actually prevent your liver from recovery. And what we call cirrhosis is the end stage of that scarring effect. Hmm. Well, I don't drink very heavily, so I'm not at risk for any liver disease, right? No. So it's true that people, we we associate alcohol with liver disease, but, you know, a lot of that really very much depends on our genetic makeup and how much alcohol we consume. 
So, for example, you can meet people who might consume quite a bit of alcohol and never develop cirrhosis, and people who consume very little alcohol but regularly and do develop cirrhosis. And that's why there are guidelines about how much alcohol we should be drinking. So an average male should drink no more than two alcoholic beverages a day, and an alcoholic beverage is four ounces of wine, 12 ounces of beer, or one ounce of spirits. And for a female, it should be no more than one drink a day. And to be honest with you, the pattern of American drinking is one that's really very much binge drinking. You know, we say weekend warrior and that kind of thing. And the truth is that kind of drinking is especially toxic to the liver. Really? Yes. So... um But are there other things which can cause liver damage outside of alcohol then? Right. There are many other things. And actually, a lot of people um, develop liver disease for totally other reasons. Um, So there are many genetic liver diseases. There are diseases of iron storage, copper storage, um, things that can be hereditary. Um, But I would say that what we see most of is viral hepatitis, specifically hepatitis C, and in some parts of the country, hepatitis B. And probably the biggest um, sort of new wave of liver disease, if you will, is the epidemic of obesity is bringing with it a syndrome called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. It's a form of hepatitis caused by excess fat in the liver. Huh. Well, we'll want to talk about that uh, some more later. So, um, so how would I know if I had liver disease if I'm not in this end stage with cirrhosis? How would I, how would I find out about that? So there are um, routine tests. So if you go for a physical, your doctor will often look at certain blood counts as well as a physical exam. So on physical exam, the doctor will you know, examine your abdomen and look for whether your liver is small or whether your liver is large, whether they can palpate a spleen, because in many people with end-stage liver disease, they actually develop a large spleen. Um, and we look for findings on the skin and then, you know, various and sundry things to see if there are any sort of what we call surrogate markers of liver disease. The lab work is often very helpful because what we do see as a person begins to develop cirrhosis is a drop in the platelet count and oftentimes a drop in the serum albumin, which is a measure of protein that the liver makes. Um, and, And we're really trying very hard to educate primary clinicians on what to look for to diagnose these things as early as possible. Um, But liver disease is really oftentimes not thought of until it's quite late. Now, the CDC came out with a guideline in 2012 that actually calls for all baby boomers born between 1945 and 1965 to have one-time hepatitis C testing, no matter whether you think you have risk factors for hepatitis C or not, because... uh, Three out of every four people in the United States with hepatitis C actually was born in that generation. And by doing this, we think we'll probably identify at least a million more people with hepatitis C. And now that we have drugs that can cure hepatitis C, I would urge everybody to go out in that, you know, in that sort of time frame of birth cohort to be tested. Certainly people who engage in um, IV drug use, even once in your life, even if you just tried it, also with intranasal cocaine, even if you just tried it, it's possible that you could have contracted hepatitis C. People who um, have gotten tattoos, perhaps in a parlor that didn't use sterile ink pots or sterile needles, could have contracted hepatitis C. Um, and certainly people who are exposed to blood, either in their profession or you know, if you're a medic, that kind of thing, um, you know, you'd, you'd want to get tested. 
Is there sexual transmission as well? It's extremely rare for hepatitis C, um, much more important with hepatitis B. So the sexual transmission rate for hepatitis C is probably less than 3%. Um, certainly there are riskier behaviors um, that may make it more likely, but uh, but it's very uncommon. But if, let's say I am a baby boomer, mm-hmm. um, born in 1957, sort of right at the second half there, um, and let's say that I uh, went to my internist and I was tested for hepatitis C and he found that I had it, um, but I'm feeling great and if, like, why should I be treated? So hepatitis C is a, a different virus in different people, okay? Of 100 people infected with hepatitis C, 25 of them will go on to develop cirrhosis within the next 20 years. 25%? Yes. That's huge. It is huge. Um, And actually, you know, I think if you think about hepatitis C in sort of the natural scheme of medicine, it's a pretty new disease. We didn't actually identify the disease until the 80s, and we didn't have an assay to actually test for it uh, until the 90s. Um, So that's, you know, we are not entirely sure of the natural history of of the disease. So when we say 25% will have cirrhosis in 20 years, I'm not really sure if a higher percentage might have cirrhosis in 40 years. Um, so it's, it's important to get tested and it's important now to think about being treated. Now, most people, as I said, will not have any symptoms at all until their liver is extremely sick. And that's the impetus to get treated. And in in the past, people were extremely afraid of treatment because it was usually a one-year commitment with injectables every week. And those, you know, usually interferon was the injectable and it made people feel horrible. And so many people who have actually tried to have their hepatitis C in the past have such horrible memories of that. And really, the response rate was chance. It was 50% mm. that they almost are sort of stuck in this, I never want to hear about it again. But now we're able to offer, offer oral therapy, so no injectables, a very short course, 12 weeks, with nearly 100% cure. So now is the time. Wow. I mean, that's really, that's really exciting. I, I, exciting. I thought we were still doing interferon. And I was thinking, boy, I don't want to take that if I don't have to. Right. Now you don't. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. So uh, the message to my co-boomers out there should be, like, go get yourself tested if you haven't been, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And they can do that at their internist at their regular yearly physical exam? Correct. Okie doke. Um, so uh, outside of um, liver failure and all the problems that I was taught that we associate with cirrhosis, mm-hmm. um, is there an association between these problems in liver cancer? I know you work interactively with the uh, with the GI cancer people. Correct. So my role at Yale is really running the liver tumor board and trying to deliver as comprehensive care as possible to the liver cancer patient. And many times these patients are different um, than other cancer patients because this cancer pretty much uniformly arises in a sick organ. So, you know, liver cancer, about 80% of patients diagnosed in the United States have underlying cirrhosis. And obviously, as a cancer grows in the liver, if the liver is already scarred, then clearly that liver is at even higher risk of developing failure because the cancer outstrips whatever functioning liver that person has. Mm. So um, I actually manage these patients in Smilo with um, a GI oncologist uh, because there are drugs that we can offer. But the issue is this needs to be sort of co-managed. And and there are many disciplines involved because there are many different types of treatments for liver cancer. So it's a cancer that's very much outside the oncologic box, if you will. 
Um, there, the, the issue with liver cancer is that treatments are unusual because for more than 30 years, it was considered to be chemotherapy and radiation resistant. And there are many, many studies of all kinds of chemotherapeutic regimens that were tried and really had very little hope of you know any kind of cure, let alone prolonging life. Um, and so it's a highly lethal cancer. And um, in that vacuum grew up the specialty of interventional radiology. So a lot of the um, treatment that we offer to liver cancer patients is what we call local regional therapy or direct therapy right into the liver. So we can burn the tumors, we can freeze them, we can deliver chemotherapy into the tumor and then choke off the tumor's blood supply. I know it sounds like, you know, Star Wars, but, you know, sometimes when you have a vacuum, other things will come to the fore. And, you know, in the beginning stages of liver cancer, oftentimes your go-to people are either surgeons, if you have preserved liver function and can undergo a liver resection, um, surgeons, if you have underlying liver disease that won't allow you to undergo resection, but you have tumor that will allow you to be transplanted, and that we can talk about a little bit later, but liver transplant um, is really an amazing thing that, that uh, can offer a, a durable cure to a patient with liver cancer. And then, you know, after that, we go to the interventional radiologist who can often keep tumor at bay while a patient waits for transplant or certainly prolong life considerably. And then once we move into more palliative therapies, interventional radiology still has a role, and then we can think of systemic therapies like serafinib, which is an FDA-approved drug for liver cancer. Hmm. Well, we're going to need to take a break in a minute. You still got me a little freaked out about the whole idea of burning my liver, mm-hmm. so maybe we can take, take that up uh, after the break. Um, and, uh, and some of the other very interesting things uh, that you've mentioned, I think we're definitely going to want to follow up on. So right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. In 2014, 200,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer, and in Connecticut alone, there'll be over 2,500 new cases. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. New treatment options and surgical techniques are giving lung cancer survivors more hope than they've ever had before. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven to test innovative new treatments for lung cancer. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial at Yale aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. And I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Tamar Taddy, and we are discussing liver cancer. Uh, Tamar, before the break, uh, I, I joked that it was scary to hear about burning and freezing the liver. Could I'm sure I'm not the only one. Uh, So can you just tell me what's that about for our listening audience? So thermal or toxic techniques can kill tissue, right? It can kill cells that you don't want. So, I mean, think about it like a wart. You know, when you go and have your wart frozen by the dermatologist, you're killing the wart cells by freezing them. Hmm. So what we can do in the liver are similar techniques. So we we actually um, put a probe into the liver. You can do it through the skin, or if it's a very difficult... 
part of the liver to reach, you can do it laparoscopically. And you put a probe into the center of the tumor, and you actually burn that tumor. Hmm. So you can burn them. You can microwave them. You can freeze them. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's all kinds of techniques. And uh-huh. those techniques are called ablative therapy. And is it painful? Or are people asleep? Or how does that work? People are under conscious sedation, um, so they're sort of able to kind of follow commands, but they really don't remember anything after the procedure. And um, it really takes about an hour or two, and uh, they leave the hospital the same day. And they may have pain. Certainly, anytime you kill tissue, you can have pain. Yeah, but usually, it lasts a matter of a couple of days, and then they go back to their daily routine. And that really helps shrink the cancer. Yes, it, it's a very good directed therapy for liver cancer. Fascinating. And then you, before the break, you had also talked about liver transplant for cancer. That shocked me. It is shocking, and it's actually something that people really ought to be aware of. So liver cancer is actually the only solid organ malignancy for which transplant offers a cure. When we think about bone marrow transplant for blood cancers, it's sort of a similar you know, thought, but what you do is you simply remove the liver and you put a new one in. That should freak you out more than burning your liver. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) And, um, you know, liver transplant actually really only became an indication, you know, or a treatment for the indication of liver cancer um, in 1996 when a New England Journal paper came out with 48 patients that were cataloged. And, you know, a 48-patient paper to hit the New England Journal is actually pretty amazing because usually those are papers that comprise thousands of patients. But the uh, findings were absolutely remarkable, which is that if you remove the liver when you have no more than three tumors, which are no more than three centimeters apiece, or one tumor no more than five centimeters apiece, you can actually have an 85% five-year survival, which is an oncologic fantastic survival, and also in the transplant world is an excellent survival. When you talk about prolonging life, It's very important to remember the different worlds that liver cancer lives in. So in the transplant world, if you're going to get a liver transplant for your cancer, your survival has to match the survival of everybody else who gets transplanted for liver disease, okay, so for end-stage liver disease. Um, And that 85% five-year survival is really what you're looking for. Hmm. That's very different than oncologic survival where if we can get a 50% five-year survival, we're very happy. But that wouldn't pass muster at a transplant center. And that's really why transplant is highly regulated for liver cancer. Now, the issue about liver cancer and transplant is that, you know, here we have these numbers, right? Three tumors, no more than three centimeters. One tumor, no more than five centimeters. But clinically, not all these tumors follow these descript patterns, right? So I've seen patients who have 10-centimeter tumors that have treatment for that tumor, and they live 10 more years, right? And I've seen people who have a 1-centimeter tumor that six months later might have just completely overtaken the liver. We don't know enough about liver biology, the biology of these particular tumors, to really know who benefits most from transplantation. And so there's a lot of study going on to try to figure out, really, is there an optimal tumor burden? Perhaps we could transplant more patients and give them, you know, really many, many decades of survival. Um, And so this is an area of very hot debate in the transplant world. 
And because really you have you have a, two populations waiting, a population of patients who may have cirrhosis but really haven't developed jaundice and liver failure, but they have a tumor, and a population who has developed liver failure and they desperately need that organ. And how do you make sure that you're really benefiting equally those populations? And that's very difficult. What about that new kind of transplant uh, that I believe that I've heard about where they give you a, a piece of somebody's liver from a living donor? Is, is that absolutely applicable here? Absolutely. And actually, um, you know, we do have a a, a tremendous donor shortage, especially in this region. Okay, this is the United Network for Organ Sharing Region 1, this part of the country, which is basically everything north of New York up to Maine. It's very hard to get a transplant here. And for that reason, we really urge patients to think about living donors. And these are people who are friends with the patient. They don't have to be a relative. There's a lot of misconceptions about living donor liver transplant. All you have to match is your blood group. It really, it's not like it needs to be one of those six out of six kidney matches that we always hear about. Right. It's actually, it's pretty amazing. Um, You know, if you have a good donor and a good recipient, it's really an elective surgery. Now, obviously, I'm biased by my observations at Yale because we have two of the best living donor surgeons in the country under one roof. So we're extremely privileged. Um, but it, it's really, it's wonderful because you're not taking away from the cadaveric pool. So you're not taking livers from people who are dying of end-stage liver disease and you can plan it, you know, according to your, you know, sort of optimal time for surgery as well as the donor's optimal time. And I mean, this is just so fascinating and overwhelming to think about, um, for the donor who's losing part of their liver, what is, what is their recovery like and what is their life like after that? So as I said earlier, you know, the liver regenerates. And so if you have no scar in your liver, and these donors have to be healthy adults, you know, under 55 years of age with no major medical problems, their liver will grow back in six weeks to fill the cavity from where half of their liver was removed, and they go about their life normally. And it's pretty amazing. I mean, you know, yeah, they have had a major surgery, and they have to have a usual recovery from a major surgery. But it's amazing how quickly the liver regenerates. And and these people actually feel very well. And there's studies going on to sort of figure out, you know, who is a living donor and and what's their life like afterwards. And actually, many of these people have extremely positive experiences because of the altruism of allowing another person to stay alive. Yeah, no, that's an amazing experience to help somebody stay alive, for sure. And what is the quality of life for the, the patients who've had a liver transplant, whether it be a cadaveric transplant or one of these living donor transplants, uh, assuming that they remain cancer-free, I assume they're taking anti-rejection drugs and so on? Correct. So, you know, anti-rejection drugs have come a long way. Most people will need to be on one or two drugs for the rest of their life. Um, But, you know, it's drugs that they take once or twice a day. They, generally speaking, feel very well. I mean, especially, you know, the end-stage liver folks who were so sick for so long, it's really a second chance, and it's it's like a night and day transformation. Mm. But I think also psychologically knowing that you've gotten rid of your liver cancer, even if you weren't terribly sick leading up to the transplant, but always playing that roulette. You know, every three months you're having an MRI. What if it grows? What if it comes back? So I think that psychological burden for, for the liver patient who's waiting for transplant with a cancer is, is overwhelming, really. So the quality of life is excellent. Their health care after transplant is not that much different from routine health maintenance before 
transplant. So in the sense that, you know, you go to the doctor maybe once a, a year to get your cholesterol checked, et cetera. Usually the first year after transplant, you're seeing the doctor a lot, but after that, not so much. And you're mostly getting routine testing, blood tests, and just making sure that, you know, you're, you're uh, rejection levels, the the medicines that you're taking, we can actually measure the level in your blood to make sure that you don't reject. Hmm. And it used to be um, that with people on anti-rejection medicine, there were a lot of infections. Is that not the case anymore? Not so much. So we worry most in the first three to six months. And during the first three months, patients are on usually quite a few medicines to prevent what we call you know opportunistic infections or infections in a person with a depressed immune system. But the liver is actually a a very um, sort of forgiving organ. So, for example, unlike the kidney, which can't tolerate rejection at all, the liver actually can tolerate rejection, and it's treated very easily. And our goal as transplant hepatologists is to actually ride the immunosuppression as low as possible so that they don't develop uh, any kind of infection but also just to make sure that the body can continue its immune surveillance function. So, you know, one of the things that we survey on a daily basis is cancer cells, right? You know, you and I may have a couple circulating cancer cells, but our immune system is saying, hey, you know, you're not right and kicks it out, right? So when you transplant a person for liver cancer, you really want to be sure that you're not suppressing their body's ability to, you know, continue that surveillance. Um, there are certain immunosuppressants that may have a role in, um, in anti-cancer. So, so we do look at those more, like, more commonly in, in a person who's been transplanted for liver disease. Um, but the, the idea in liver transplant is really to avoid over-immunosuppression. Hmm. So it sounds like as big a deal as it, as it sounds like it is, at the end of the day, some of these patients are being cured and have excellent quality of life. Absolutely. Well, that's got to be very gratifying for you and obviously... Absolutely. Nice outcome for them. Mm -hmm. So um, while we still have some time, uh, you kind of freaked me out a little bit about this uh, this epidemic of obesity uh, and this um, complicated hepatitis that you were telling me about. So maybe I bet a few of our patients like me have not been as successful on their Weight Watchers plan Mm -hmm. as uh, we wish we were. Right. So... You know, again, as we talked about with alcohol, a lot of it really depends on your genetic makeup. So as a society, we're becoming obese, okay? I mean, it's in the literature everywhere. Children are now obese. Adults, at least a third of the population is obese, all right? So what happens in a person who has obesity and the genetic makeup to have this risk factor of aberrant fat handling or bad fat handling is that they develop fat in their liver that um, can really be toxic to the liver and can cause scarring. First, it causes inflammation, then it causes scarring, and that scarring can ultimately lead to cirrhosis. Now, we are seeing liver cancer in patients with this type of hepatitis, this non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. What's alarming is that it's now being described that we're seeing it before they develop cirrhosis. Now, the guidelines for screening for liver cancer really are only in patients with cirrhosis. Mm. So it sort of begs the question, you know, how do we approach this population? Now, you know, the question is, okay, so if you're carrying around an extra few pounds, should you be nervous that you have this? And usually routine blood tests on your yearly physical, usually a doctor will check liver tests. If they're not abnormal, you shouldn't really worry about it that much. Um, if you have a family history of liver disease um, in, and you, you come from a family that's been heavy, if you have a family history of diabetes, 
These are sort of some of the more likely risk factors. So we see this syndrome mostly in people who have hypertension, high cholesterol, and diabetes. That's sort of the most at-risk group. But there are people who don't have diabetes and get fatty liver disease. Um, there are certainly families that have a long line of, of sort of obesity and liver disease that really nobody's been able to diagnose. This syndrome, I think much of it used to be lumped into this term of cryptogenic cirrhosis, which is sort of like, you know, we didn't know. Uh, but now we're beginning to know. And what's very interesting is that by the time they come to me, they've usually lost a lot of the weight because their liver disease is so severe that they, they can't maintain their muscle mass and, and they lose the weight. Hmm. So oftentimes I'll say, could you bring me a picture, you know, of what you looked like before you became ill? And sure enough, you know, they were overweight, considerably overweight. Now, we worry about people who have centripetal obesity, meaning that they kind of look more like an apple than a pear. So a lot of their fat is what we call visceral fat or the fat that kind of sits on your belly. Um, and we're you know, actively trying to figure out how to treat these folks. But the mainstays of treatment really are exercise um, and weight loss. And the problem is, is that you know, we have a culture of you know, lots of sugar, lots of carbohydrates, and, and you know, it's extremely difficult to tell a patient to lose weight and not actually give them the real tools to lose the weight. They need to meet with a nutritionist. You know, they, they should be involved in a program that can kind of really think about how to educate them to exercise and lose weight. Yale is actually starting a program like that, a metabolic uh, program for folks who need to lose weight. And, I mean, ideally, we should see anybody who's obese, but certainly those with liver disease or heart disease you know, we want to see as early as possible. Now, what's really sad is that it used to be that we said, oh, we're not going to worry about these people because they're going to die of their coronary disease long before they die of their liver disease. But the truth is, is that cardiologists have gotten so good at medically managing, you know, obesity-related heart disease that we're actually seeing these folks now in droves. Dr. Tamar Taddy is Associate Professor of Medicine and Digestive Diseases at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudet, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.